This it kind of feels strange to preach at the end of a weekend like this because I kind of feel like I'm preaching the subject we've already covered. You know, not that we've covered it in any sense exhaustively, but we've read the passage we're going to look at several times and we've been thinking about it. We've we've discussed implications of it. So in a sense, it feels kind of easy. It's like, okay, job done. But but I think there's um, there's, there's a something special to come to the end of a weekend like this and to really bring our thoughts together. And so that's what I, I hope we can do in this time is to I'm just gonna look at a short passage from Revelation, but but I hope that it, it it stirs our hearts. I hope it gets us excited, uh, although we're already there, I think. But I hope this makes a difference because once we go home, we don't want this to fade. We want what we've been thinking about to grip us and to help us as we move forward. Now, in a sense, what we've been talking about the whole weekend is hope, right? And, And we're talking about a hope that changes us. And I think quite often we, we live in a culture and a world where hope, hope kind of gets jaded, you know what I mean? Like you, after a while, you, you just kind of stop hoping in the same way. So some people are very excited because of what's happening at Downing Street. And, well, we're going to get a new prime minister. But people that have been around for a little while tend to go, yeah, it's going to be the same, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, there's, is there hope that we're going to resolve the Brexit thing properly? <laughs> I don't know. Right now, it's football transfer window season. So for people whose teams aren't in the Champions League final, all we've got is the hope of buying a player that's going to make a difference. And it's really fun to watch that on Twitter and try not to get your hopes up. I will be delighted if things work out the way Twitter's going, but I know it won't go the way it's saying. And so I'm sort of jaded about it. You know, and we can kind of have this, whether it's in sport or whether it's in politics, even things like medicine. You know, we we would love to see a cure for certain diseases, wouldn't we? And actually look back in time and you say, well, yeah, that disease got dealt with and that disease, we're not dealing with polio and tuberculosis and so on. Uh, And there have been some real changes. And yet, even if they did find a cure for cancer, as wonderful as that would be, we all know the story would still end the same way. Right? Cure for disease doesn't mean forever life. And so we're in a world where hope can, can become sort of a wishful thinking where hopefully this goes well and hopefully that's better than I'm expecting and, and gradually you just become jaded. But hopefully what we're seeing biblically is that when God says this is what's going to happen, he means it. He can follow through on it. He can keep his promises. And therefore, the hope that we're talking about is not wishful thinking. It's not the sort of pie in the sky when you die kind of a view of heaven that just says, well, you know, we've got this crutch that ultimately is going to, everything's going to be fine. So we live on, you know, leaning and hobbling along on this crutch. Now, the reality is that as we have our hearts and our minds set on things above, as we have our lives, uh, if you like, fixed in eternity, that makes a real difference for the lives that we live now. That makes a a real significant uh, difference to the perspective that we have. Let me give you a hypothetical. This is a silly example. But let let me say this. Imagine if uh, you were offered a job and it was something you could do. It wouldn't really stretch you. You know, it's just, you know, copying something on a typewriter, word processor, or uh, attaching, you know, screwing a lid onto a jar, something kind of mundane. But you were promised that at the end of the year, you would be paid, I don't know, £8,000 or £18,000, something like that. You could do it. 
And let's say the conditions are kind of okay, but not great, and your colleagues are, you know, a little bit dull would be nice. Let's say awkward. So you've got awkward colleagues doing a dull job, and you've got the promise and the certainty of pay at the end of the year. You probably would do okay. If you took that job, you probably would do okay for a while. But I would imagine that after a few weeks or a couple of months, the constant moaning and the awkwardness of the people and the tediousness of the job, it would just kind of drain you. And you might find yourself thinking, is this really worth it? Do I really want to do this? Now, imagine exactly the same job, but the, the person who's given you the job is a real uh, trustworthy person. They've said, look, you do this for a year, and I'm going to pay you £18 million. Pounds. Okay. If, if you trusted that person, that hope at the end of the year, you'd probably cope with some annoying conversation and some tedious days at work. You'd probably do it with a smile, right? Because 18 million pounds is just a little bit more than most of us can ever dream of earning, isn't it? And so we kind of have, when there's a motivation, it changes the present. The 18 million is all future. And yet it would affect every moment of that year as you anticipate, as you live, as you choose, as you, uh, you know, attitude shift and all those things. Well, that's hypothetical, but what we're talking about biblically is reality. And, and the reality, actually, when we come to the book of Revelation, is a reality that was written, a book that was written for a group of people originally who were in the worst of circumstances. But John wrote the Revelation coming towards the end of the first century. And so the people that were receiving the book of Revelation, the seven churches in modern-day Turkey, that kind of area, they were getting this book of prophecy from John, given by Jesus, a revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and these were people that were entering into a season of incredible persecution. Domitian was the emperor. If you know your Roman history, you'd know that Domitian's persecution was worse than Nero's. Domitian was a nutter. They all were slightly mad, but Domitian was really mad, and Christians really bore the brunt of it. I mean, they, they got an incredible amount of, of persecution. I mean, I won't go into too much detail, but being kind of impaled on spikes and set on fire while still alive was part of it. They mass crucifixions of Christians. And worse than both of those things, Christians uh, having to watch family members suffering in ways that I'm not going to describe, seeing that and then having to live with that. Domitian was just pure evil, just nasty. And yet somehow the Christians had hope under those circumstances. And what we're looking at as we look at the book of Revelation is the hope that they had, the hope that carried them through. One historian has said that the early church outthought the pagans and outlived the pagans and outdied the pagans. When they saw how Christians died, they couldn't, what else did they have? They had no more weapons against them. And you can only die in that way with confidence and hope when you have some certainty of what's to come beyond it. Tertullian, the early church father, said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And so the reason, part of the reason why we're here today is because almost 2,000 years ago, Christians suffered and bled and died because of the hope that we're talking about. And therefore, the gospel spread. Now, for us, hopefully that's not our experience 
certainly currently and hopefully in the future. Realistically, it's not as far away as we like to imagine. Right? There's, there's movement, there's rumblings, there's political shifts and so on. And so persecution may come and it may come in an extremely uh, frightening way for us. But even if it doesn't, the hope that Revelation offers us is a hope that we need. I think about the list. You've heard the verse several times. I'm going to read it again in a second. But think about this. Do you, have you ever or do you expect to ever experience tears, pain, suffering, mourning, death? Well, the answer is yes, right? These, these are not extreme things that only some people go through. This is normal life. All of us, either present or future, will experience these things. But this passage, this book, offers us hope in the midst, not just of the worst persecution, but also the normal things of life. And so, let me read to you, and you can by all means read along with me, uh, Revelation 21. We're going to look at the first eight verses, just as you're finding that. Revelation 21. I won't give you a page number. It's go to the back and go, go in a couple of pages. I suppose there's really two things when we're thinking about hope. There are two key elements to what the Bible teaches. There's an incredible amount of detail. We've barely scratched the surface. In fact, one time I went through the New Testament, and uh, I think 26 out of 27 books give some sort of reference to the return of Christ. So it's a huge subject. And the two things that are uh, worth pointing out, one of which we've focused on, uh, that are keys to us having hope, are, are this. First of all, a glimpse of the future. That's what we've focused on. That's what we're going to think about in this session. A glimpse of the future to give us perspective in the present. The New Testament gives us a lot of that. Old Testament too. The other thing that we haven't really spoken about is this uh, idea of the imminent return of Christ. And by imminent, it means it could happen at any moment. This is something the Bible is clear on, that there is nothing that has to happen before Jesus returns. Now that's really important because if you start putting things in before Jesus returns, then our gaze starts to go for those things. We start scanning our newspapers and wondering, okay, which country is going to maneuver? What's going to happen? What's going to change in the world? But ever since the beginning, from the early church onwards, there has always been, among believers reading their Bible, a clear sense, Jesus could come back today. He's imminent. He's at the threshold, if you like. And we don't, therefore, need to watch politics or world affairs or, or you know, how bad things have to get or how good things have to get. The fact that Jesus could return at any moment gives us a sense of blessed hope. The blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that Paul talks about in Titus. We haven't talked about that. We've sung about it. But I want to just point that out. Let's make sure that we've got that as kind of part of our thinking. The reality is Jesus could come back before I finish this sermon. And, and too often I forget that and you forget that. So maybe you pray for that during my sermons. But, but too often we forget that sense that it could be today. You know, it could be today. Now it could be today that we get hit by a bus and we go to be with Jesus. That, that's also an option. But it could be today that he comes and we get to skip the whole death thing and we just transform instantly. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? How cool would that be? So those two things we've got to keep in our, in our hearts. The fact that Jesus could come at any moment and the glimpse of the future. So let's go to Revelation 21 and read again these verses. 
uh, verses 1 to 8. And actually, you could keep going. And I encourage you to do that. Read the whole of chapter 21, the whole of chapter 22, and, and just see how the whole story of history gets wrapped up. So 21 verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, we could keep reading, like I said, but we're just going to focus in on that. And we're basically going to think about two things. First of all, what's not there, and then who is there. Okay, so the what's not there, let's just uh, scan down those verses. First of all, verse 1. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there's no sea. That's a little bit, uh, a little bit discouraging for those of us that love the sea. Uh, I think from the Jewish perspective, the sea was always seen as something of turmoil and darkness and threat. They weren't seafarers. They didn't like the sea. And so I I wonder if maybe hopefully there'll be something, but uh, maybe at least a lake we can swim in. But um, the first earth has passed away. Now, it would be easy for us jumping in here to say, well, you know, I kind of like this earth. There's things that I'm in favor of here. Anything that's good, anything that has sin removed can carry on and re-exist in some form. So don't feel like you're going to miss, you know, pizza or classical music or sports or whatever. I think all of the creativity, all of the development that humanity has come up with, all the ingenuity, you know, just, to, just think of how amazing the internet would be minus sin. And just think about how good competition could be minus sin. Just think about the best restaurants and the best music and the best creativity. We're not leaving that stuff behind. If we were to read through Revelation, what we would find is that Revelation begins, funnily enough, in chapter 1, and uh, kind of the introduction. Then you get two chapters of letters, seven letters to seven churches. After that, from chapter 4 through to probably 18, there's some discussion among Bible readers as to whether, uh, is this future, is this present, is this fulfilled back then, you know, what's going on, and we're not going to get into that. But most positions, maybe all positions, by the time you get to the end of 18, and certainly from 19 to the end of the book, everybody's agreeing, yes, this is future. May not agree on details, but it's clearly future. And what you have when you come through chapter 17 and 18 is this description of this world system. 
just the, the kind of the, the hideousness, the grotesqueness, the, not just the, the sins that are done, but the fact that the whole system to its core is corrupt. And so when this world falls, when judgment comes, there's celebration. People are celebrating the fall of Babylon the Great. And there's lots of imagery tied into that. But just think of all of the corrupt big business and, you know, all the politics and all the things that you kind of have a sense that no matter what you do, you can never quite get a fair run of anything. You know, that there's someone behind the scenes somehow corrupting things. It's going to be dealt with. And in that sense, all of that stuff, Revelation 17 and 18, that world is gone. And praise God for that. All the corruption, all the bribes, all the cheating, all the uh, systems that are unfair, all the things that are set up to just crush the little people, gone. The former things passed away. Come down to verse 4, what else is gone? Every tear, death, mourning, crying, pain. It's not a bad list, is it? From the, the, the tear of a child that falls and scrapes their knee to the cry of agony from a mother whose child has just been killed. You think about the tears and the mourning and the death and the pain in this world. It's, it's overwhelming, isn't it? We almost can't cope. As we have the television on with the news, we just kind of harden ourselves because there's so much pain in the world. It's almost scary how cold we can become to the things that are out there. But it's all going to be gone. All of the, the reasons for, all of the tears, the mourning, the pain, the grief, all of the sadness taken away. That's the world we want to be in, isn't it? And then when you go down to verse 8, what else is not going to be there is a whole list of people. And these are people who are rebellious, the antagonists, the, the baddies, if you like. And on the one hand, you can look at that list and you can say, great, praise the Lord, I'm glad there won't be sorcerers and idolaters and sexually immoral and murderers and so on. I'm glad that, that there will be judgment and that those who have lived for that will not be any part of our future. But I suppose there's another side, isn't there? We look at that list and we go, yeah, well, I've never murdered. But on the inside, I've kind of been angry. And Jesus said anger is like murder. And, and sexual immorality, like who's really been pure perfectly all the way through their lives? I mean, ah, we all fall into aspects of idolatry and faithlessness. And you can look at this list and feel kind of scared, can't you? Remember, we don't get into heaven because we're good enough. We don't get into heaven because we've earned our place. The reality is we're there because Jesus has paid for our sin. This is a list of those who refuse to allow for the penalty to have been paid. And so they take it on themselves. This is not us, even though some of these labels may fit some aspect of our lives. By God's grace, this is not us. And so to be in a world where there is none of the world corrupt system and there's none of the fruit and the consequences of evil and there are no people whose lives are characterized by these sins, that sounds already like a good world, doesn't it? But then you look at this passage, you say, okay, what is there? Who is there? What, how do we start to imagine or understand what's going on? And very simply, we could put it together like this. Well, God's there and we're there. Right, God and us. And so let's just work our way backwards through, through these verses just to see 
some of the kind of elements of what it means for us to have this as our hope. Start in verse 7. He says, the, the one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. What does that mean? Way back in Revelation 2 and 3, uh, Jesus gets into this rhythm of saying, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat of the tree of life. To the one who overcomes, I will give. Uh, and there's all these promises to the overcomer or to the conqueror. Now, that sounds like super Christians, doesn't it? To him who overcomes. That's got to be like Billy Graham, overcomer. You know, John Stott, overcomer. Me, not so much. But that's not the way John's writing it. That's not the way it it, it means that the word overcomer there is talking about the one who overcomes this world. What is it that overcomes this world? John tells us in his letter. It's our faith. It's kind of John's way of saying that it's our faith that defines who we are. So how are we there? We're there by faith. We've trusted Christ and therefore we've overcome this world. This world that wants to hold us and grip us and have us and let us be uh, absolutely kind of in its system. It's only as we trust in Christ that we find we're able to rise over that. And therefore to live not perfect faith, not you know, without any struggle or without any doubt. Because great faith is in the midst of doubts, isn't it? Real faith is hanging in there. I was chatting to, to Tim earlier about how easy it is to resist things that you don't like. You know, like we, certain cakes, like you could look at us and you say, man, Tim and Pete, they are absolutely self-disciplined. What superheroes avoiding certain cakes? The truth is we just don't like them. But put biscuits in front of us that we do like, that's a challenge. You know, and so overcoming isn't just rising high and just being this superhero of the faith who finds everything easy. No, real life where you and I live is in the midst of struggles and doubts and fears and, oh, I've messed up and, oh, what if and, oh, no, you know. And it's that struggle, our faith carries us through that. And so the one who's there is there by faith. More than that, go back a verse, verse 6 Uh, second half of the verse to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment here God's saying that that the ones who are there like us when we're thirsty when we're, we're, we're needing he's giving abundantly Isn't it a beautiful picture? To the thirsty I will give uh, from the spring of the water of life that that's pretty good water right so you have access to that spring and he just gives it to you have some more i want you to be satisfied and so we're there by faith and we're satisfied by his grace his abundance his generosity is going to be a feature of our entire eternity Go back to the start of the verse, in fact, even the end of the verse before where he says, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. What's he saying? He's saying that he keeps his promises. When he says something, his word can be trusted. And so we're there by faith. We're satisfied by grace. It's guaranteed by his promise. Notice that when you get into the detail, it's all about him, isn't it? So often when we think about heaven, we we think about, oh, you know, are the streets really going to be paved with gold? 
You know, and to, it's an amazing thought, but actually the reason you would pave the streets with gold is because gold has become relatively worthless. I'm sure some people think we need pickaxes in heaven to get some of that gold, you know. That's exactly the wrong point. The point is that gold becomes meaningless. It's as significant in heaven as asphalt is to us. Why? Because in comparison to having God right there, gold is next to worthless. And so satisfied by his grace, guaranteed by his promise, our future is all about him. Look at what he says at the start of verse 5, since we're working our way up the, the line here. He says, behold, I am making all things new. Isn't it interesting, the, the, the tense there? Remember, this is God speaking, or Jesus speaking, to John, first century, about the future. Why doesn't he say, I will make all things new? Actually, he says, I am making all things new. Andy mentioned this in passing, but I just want to take our minds back to Romans 8. And this is a passage that is worth going to and looking at. In Romans 8, from verse 18 to 25, there is a description, if you like, of the fall and of the restoration. And the fall, what happened in Genesis 3, has three layers to it. And so when Adam and Eve sinned, when they took that fruit and they ate it, that rebellion against God, in that moment the fall occurred and three things happened. They died spiritually. They began to die physically and creation began to die. So that's three levels of death. So in that moment, instantly, they were hiding themselves, right? Because there's a separation now between them and God. They don't have that connection anymore. Suddenly, they feel incredibly naked spiritually, and their instinct is to cover up. I'm inadequate. I'm made in the image of God, and I'm not very godlike. And so there's that hiding impulse. It was instant death in that sense. But their bodies started to groan and to creak. And they lasted quite a while. It was at 930 for Adam. So it's not like, you know, it wasn't a rush job. But, but death was creeping in. And cells were starting to break down in a negative sense. And things were starting to decay. And so they were on a trajectory towards death from that moment. And all around them, suddenly, things weren't quite right in the universe. Suddenly, the creation was groaning, struggling death was entering in to something that was designed to be pure life and so that threefold fall is is overpowering and ultimately in the future all three aspects of that are going to be redeemed and restored right ultimately we're going to have new bodies ultimately we're going to be in in relationship with god personally with the spirit very much at work within us and ultimately creation is not going to be dying anymore and the lion and the lamb can sit down together and you'd be able to pick up a snake and not, you know, Joel, put it back. You know, don't have that sort of parent versus child instinct with snakes and things anymore. But in Romans 8, what Paul is saying is that God has started the new creation already. And the new creation began when Jesus rose from the dead. He's the first fruits. And we have the first of those three things in place already because we already have the Spirit of God within us. We already have a life of delight in Christ. There's a struggle. You know there's a struggle, right? You know there's a flesh that's pulling you away from him. But there's a spiritual life within us that is already the first part of that heaven hope. 
And so God can say, I am making things new. Look at David. Look at Becky. And look at uh, you know, Esther. And look at Danny. Look, I'm already making things new. Now, each one of them would say, yeah, well, my knee's still a little bit, you know, and my, my back isn't what it was. No, 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 he hasn't done that yet. Don't worry. That's still to come. The wrist will be fixed ultimately. So there's this eternal hope that the physical is going to be restored to what it should be. And the creation is going to be what it should be. But if you like, the guarantee of that is that we're already changed on the inside. We've already got a little bit of heaven within us because the Spirit of God is giving us a delight in Christ. That's why God can say, look, I am making, not just I will, but I am making all things new. The miracle of salvation should absolutely thrill our hearts because it not only is such a contrast to what would naturally happen in this world, but it's also a foretaste of what's to come. So those moments when you're caught up in worship, whether it's in a church service or in the shower or driving, wherever you have your best worship moments, those moments, you know, maybe you see a landscape or you see something or you're reading your Bible or, you know, you see the stars and just you're overwhelmed by it. And that moment where you go, oh, Jesus, I love you. That's a taste of heaven right there because he's already started the recreation process. So back to the list then, we've got the fact that we're going to be there by faith, the fact that we're going to be satisfied by his grace, uh, where we have this guaranteed by his promise. And then go back to verse 4. I love that it says, not every tear will be wiped. That would be awesome. But it says he will wipe every tear. Have you thought about that? The one who entered into our world, if you like, his world, but our world, our mess, the one who became one of us to experience everything that we experience so that he could be our great high priest, the one who is able to be sympathetic. When we pray and say, Lord, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that, Jesus says, yeah, I get that. I understand what that's like. In some sense, he has experienced everything that we experience. He never sinned, so he experienced it worse. The temptations that we've succumbed to, he never did. So he knows what the pressures of this world are. He knows how tough it is. He knows the heartache of betrayal and loss and grief and suffering. He knows it on a human level. And he will wipe away every tear. Isn't that beautiful? It's not that God's going to go, tears gone. And then we go, oh, remember crying? Not really. He's going to wipe away every tear. And I'm so thankful for that. Because I trust him. If ever there was someone who could understand, it's our Lord. If ever there was someone who could comfort us, it's him. He's the good shepherd. He's going to be the most tender of all. And that care is going to be his tenderness towards us. Isn't that great? Every tear wiped by one who cares for us enough to die for us. Now, when you put those things together, uh, you know, we're there by faith. It's, it's not our works. It's his goodness. And we're satisfied by his grace, again, freely and abundantly. Uh, and then there's the, the bit before that. It's guaranteed by his promise. We've got certainty. And there's that tenderness, the care for by his tenderness. It's, it's like different aspects of what we see in verses 2 and 3. And 2 and 3 really is the heart of this passage. That's why I've saved it for last. You saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, 
prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the big idea of the Bible. If I was asked to preach the whole Bible in one message, those two verses would be the main point. I'd start in Leviticus where it comes from originally and I'd trace it all the way through. I wrote a book and I did a chapter on it and just love writing it just to see how that idea throughout the whole of scripture is that God's plan is for us to be his people, that he wants to be our God and that he wants us to dwell, to live together. That's why the whole of scripture, the whole story of history is a story that's destined for a wedding. We're going to be united together will be the bride, Christ will be the groom. And once you put it in marital terms, suddenly like, there's, there's no way to overstate things. Like, to, to talk about his tender care makes sense if he's the groom. To talk about his satisfying gr- grace makes sense if he's the groom. To talk about the guarantee of his promise, it makes sense if he's the groom. The whole package makes sense because he loved us enough to propose, not on one knee, with a rose between his teeth, but with his arms outstretched and a crown of thorns on his head. Say, I love you this much. Will you be part of my bride? Now, that's what we're looking forward to. It's not the streets of gold, and it's not just wonderful surroundings and Niagara Falls without sin. It's all of that as the backdrop for seeing him, for being with him, forever with the Lord. That's our hope. In 1952, Uh, American swimmer called Florence Chadwick uh, decided to go for a bit of a challenge. She'd already done the English Channel. I think she'd done it backward there and back. I mean, she was a pretty impressive swimmer. Uh, And so in 1952, she decided to swim from Catalina Island to the shore of California, which, you know, is Dave's other home. So, you know, that that 26-mile stretch of, of sea, 26 miles, can you imagine? And as there's sharks in that water, it's dangerous. So there were little boats around. One of the boats had her mother in it. And so she set out that particular morning and she swam. And she swam for 15 hours. And the boats were there and, you know, just kind of communication was happening. And at one point she said uh, to her mother, I, I can't do this. I'm not going to make this. A, a fog had set in and it was, it was just difficult circumstances. Her mother said, you're almost there. Keep going. So she kept going for another half an hour, hour, whatever it was. And finally she said, I can't do it. And they pulled her into the boat. And and she'd failed in her 26-mile swim. She'd failed. And as she was pulled into the boat, she then discovered that she was less than a mile from shore, maybe half a mile. She was so close. But because of that fog, because of the perspective that she had, she couldn't finish. And afterwards she said, I think... Because of the cloud, I couldn't see the shore. I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And that's, that's like us. We're so close. We're so close relatively, whatever our age. We're so close. In terms of eternity, we're so close. And yet often the fog descends and the circumstances overpower us and the difficulties are so huge. But I think if we could see the shore, if we could see the future, what God has for us, we'd power through whatever's left. Not because we're great, but because he is. 
with that hope, with that expectation, the suffering, the challenges, the difficulties, the sacrifices, I think we'd make it. God gives us the glimpse that we need. Let me encourage you and myself, let's encourage one another to make sure we keep coming back to see what it is he said to us. To to catch a glimpse afresh so that as we're gripped by what's coming, with the hope that he's coming soon to take us to be with him, let us move forward with confidence. Whatever that means. Our decisions, our choices, our career choices, the, the, the tough decisions, the, the kind of fearful ones where we're thinking of inviting somebody to, you know, the Mark drama, or we're thinking of talking to somebody and we hold back. Let's look again to the hope that is ours. We're half a mile from shore. And even if we can't see it clearly, if we can even imagine what it will be like, maybe we'll have the strength to take that next step. Whether it's just going through another week, with whatever your particular struggle is, or whether it's facing martyrdom, if that ever becomes part of our story. Whatever is in front of us, like Paul said, it's light and momentary in comparison to the surpassing weight of glory that is to come. Let's just take a a moment, maybe 30 seconds or a minute, just to quietly bow our hearts before God, just to quietly imagine what it is going to be like to be satisfied by his grace, to be there by faith, to be, uh, to be guaranteed by his promise and carefully, tenderly cared for by our groom. Let's just anticipate and in our hearts ask him to show us what that means for us. Just personal and quiet and then I'll, uh, I'll lead us in communion after that. But let's just take a moment of quiet first.